Hello, everybody. This is Dave Perosic. I am education reporter for the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and welcome to my podcast on COVID-19 and education. Uh, we at the newspaper have been doing our best to cover the ongoing pandemic, and as we all know, COVID has uh, affected virtually everybody, but uh, it most certainly has had a serious impact on our education system. Uh, the Democrat Gazette is working on a series of stories on that very subject, which kicks off Sunday, August 16th. And in conjunction with that series, we thought we'd do some extras, including this podcast, with some of the fine folks in our state who are heavily invested in the schools. So we're going to talk about the pandemic, what it's done to education, some lessons learned, um, and what, if any, silver linings there are to see here. So uh, before we go any further, let me introduce three guests I have with me here by phone. Uh, Dr. Richard Abernathy has been executive director of the Arkansas Association of Educational Administrators since 2010, I believe, and is planning to retire from that position at the end of this year. He previously served as superintendent of the Bryant School District for seven years. Dr. Jay Barth started this year as Chief Education Officer for the City of Little Rock, a new position there at City Hall. He is a retired college professor and last year completed a seven-year run on the Arkansas Board of Education, where he was its chairman for two years. We also have Anna Boyot, I hope I got that pronunciation right, um, starting her 20th year as a French teacher for the Fayetteville School District. She is also president of the Fayetteville Education Association, an organization of school teachers and staff members in the district. So thank you to the three of you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Sure um, Dr. Ab Abernathy, I'd like to start with you. Um, this has not been a typical summer for those who run our local school districts. Uh, wondered if you could comment a bit about what you're hearing from superintendents and other administrators. Um, how would you describe the challenges that they're dealing with this summer? Well, uh, thank you, Dave, and, I, and I, you're right. It has not been a typical summer. It, it certainly wasn't a typical close of the school year either. Uh, school administrators and, and specifically school superintendents have been in constant communication since March, uh, trying to figure out uh, you know, how to close the year down. Uh, about summer summer school stuff, and then obviously the, the last couple of months, how to open schools back up uh, as safely as possibly can. Uh, it it has been a you know stressful time for everyone, uh, from the the governor to, to teachers to administrators and parents, and and exactly what we can do to uh, to uh, protect our kids and protect our staff. So they are. Uh, constantly been planning. Uh, they they have committees uh, at their local school district trying to figure out the best way to follow the guidelines. Uh, and of course, the guidelines have changed multiple times, and that's both good and bad. And uh, it's bad because you like to have one set of guidelines and you can go with it. The good part of it uh, of it is they they change guidelines based on what the research is is doing out there. So that's a positive thing. Uh, but it is um, you know multiple schedule. I actually had a superintendent the other day. I'd say no wonder why they're so stressed uh, because they are trying to open up school or actually three different schools all in the same year. You know, they're trying to open up a virtual school and staff that, trying to open up an on-site school and staff that, a blended school and staff that. 
uh, and then also trying to figure out what what parents are would like to do with their kids, how many are going to come on, you know, would participate in which program. So it it's um, it's been stressful. Absolutely. And Mrs. Bilio, as a teacher, you're on the front lines here, um, and you're going to be teaching in-person classes. Is that correct? Um, yes, sort of. Um, I'm actually, uh, I teach at the high school. So at the secondary level in, in Fayetteville school districts, we actually will be teaching all of the kids together. So that's what I've been working on is looking at, we've got multiple options. So I'll have students in my class who are home campus virtual. And then I'll have some students who are on the hybrid coming to school two days a week. And then I'll have kids who are on the hybrid coming four days a week. And I'll have kids coming five days a week. But they'll all be in the same class together. Hmm. Sounds complex. It, it really, it is complex. Um, and that's, that's what everyone is working on right now. You know, we... Um, we went back to school. Everyone officially started yesterday, um, but we had many teachers start Tuesday and Wednesday um, to do their flex days is what we call them. And that's kind of what we've been trying to do is figure out how we're going to deliver instruction to all of these different types of learners um, at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been asked this probably dozens of times, but how are you feeling about the coming school year? What, what's going on in your head as you, as we sit here 10 days out from the start of school? Yeah. Uh, I don't like to put a number on how many days I have left. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, there's a little bit of anxiety. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Um, you know, I, I, I do have 22 years of experience teaching my content. So I'm certainly not afraid of, of being able to do that. It, it's just a matter of being able to um, equitably deliver instruction to all the different students. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been a process to kind of wrap your head around that. Um, we're, we're going about this in, in, a, in a little bit different way than normal years because Normally we have technology professional development sessions where we're learning about different tools that will help us enhance the, the learning experience for our students. Whereas this year, the tools are the learning experience and we don't have as much time to get comfortable with them that as we normally would. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't normally implement an entire new learning system from beginning to end at, you know, in a school year, I would take some things that I'm very comfortable with and then just introduce one or two new things. Uh, this year, we just don't have that option. So it, it's a little overwhelming. Um, you know, I think it can be done. I just, it, I think it's just going to talk, it's going to, it's going to require a totally different relationship between the teachers and the students and then the teachers and the parents, because we're all going to have to be communicating as to what is working well, what isn't quite working, um, what assistance that the student needs, what assistance the parents needs. 
because it, it, especially for those students who are the virtual or the ones who aren't coming to school every day, we just don't have enough contact with them to be able to do what teachers normally do. We can gather a lot of information off of nonverbal clues. Um, it's very easy to, to assess how a student is feeling in a class just by them being there. And that, that's been taken away from us, um, obviously, given, given our current reality. So, hmm. Dr. Barth, uh, as Chief Education Officer for Little Rock, City of Little Rock, I know you're engaged in trying to implement a, a model of community-based education for the city. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, could you kind of describe what it is you're trying to accomplish there? Yeah, um, so the community school model, um, which has a, uh, increasingly a, a proven record of success uh, around the country, is, is a model that really has uh, four key pillars. One of them is uh, really uh, meeting uh, the needs of students uh, in terms of their wraparound services. Uh, so whether it's healthcare, um, behavioral health, whether it's uh, their, their, their food needs, um, is the first pillar. The second pillar is really uh, recognizing the importance of high quality out of school learning experiences um, for those same students. And the third pillar is really um, seeing uh, schools as hubs of the community and really using uh, schools, which are these public spaces, as places where the entire community, parents, community members alike, can really receive the services they need to thrive, whether that's English language classes or legal services uh, that the school really can serve that that role. Uh, and then finally, really kind of rethinking uh, leadership in the school, uh, not necessarily questioning the kind of the ultimate job of the principal to, uh, to, to achieve the goals of education, but really uh, thinking about getting everyone's voice involved in uh, voicing the needs of the, the community and, and being sure that those uh, needs are being met. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a model that, that has shown a lot of success around the country. We're now getting a lot more empirical evidence about it. And um, our implementation of it here, um, is, uh, we, we have, of course, been delayed a bit by the pandemic uh, in our implementation, but, but we are moving forward uh, with it. And what we're seeing around the country is uh, those places that already had community schools in place had some infrastructure uh, to respond to these kind of exceptional and extraordinary needs that arose uh, as a result of the pandemic. And they had a, they had some, some infrastructure to go to in ways that I think a lot of schools really were, were left uh, without a lot of that uh, built-in uh, infrastructure um, and, you know, had to do extraordinary things very quickly on the fly. Mm -hmm. Did the shutdown of the schools this spring inform you at all on how you go about doing what you do? Did you learn anything from it that perhaps influenced your plans moving forward? Well, I, you know, I, I think we, we got some, um, you know, odd uh, benefit from uh, the shutdown uh, here in Little Rock in that uh, we really, it forced together a lot of partners uh, that are going to be really crucially important uh, in the community school model going forward. A good examples in terms of our our meals program here, and certainly the Little Rock School District did a lot in terms of continuing to deliver um, uh, breakfast and, and lunch uh, via waivers that were granted. Uh, but we had a lot of other partners come together uh, out of the Clinton uh, Presidential Center uh, and the Central Arkansas Library System 
you know, and we uh, were able to deliver uh, about three quarters of a million meals uh, since March uh, to to families um, in uh, and students uh, across the city of Little Rock. Uh, and that was, I think, extraordinary, and it only happened because of a, a tremendous number of partners who came together, and that's exactly kind of at the heart and soul of a community school model. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so I'd like to open it up to all three of you now, um, so please feel free to chime in. What do you see as the most significant impacts this pandemic has had on our K-12 schools, and do you think they'll result in permanent changes to the system? And what changes do you hope will come about from this? Well, Dave, I'll start. I, I think, um, and at least it is my hope, um, that when you look at significant changes on, on education, uh, you will see and, and our communities will see exactly uh, what publication is. I mean, it is the hub of not only our community but of our economy. Uh, it is the hub for parents where people can uh, come together and collaborate. And I think sometimes uh, a wider audience misses that, uh, especially when you can bring kids in and, and dealing with not only just the academic end of it, but the whole child uh, issue and, and their mental health issues and their food security issues. I mean, it is a school where those problems are attacked and, and resolved. And, and I really hope our, our teachers have a um, are, are better appreciated uh, and better respected uh, in our community. And I'm not saying they're not in all communities. I'm just saying as a whole uh, that, our, that our teachers deserve a lot of, a lot more respect than what they've been given over the last, uh, say, decade. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the uh, a significant things uh, in this. As far as things that I think will, will change permanently uh, is the delivery of instruction. Um, and, and I think Ms. Bolian said it very well. Uh, you know, she's very, uh, very comfortable with the content, but now it's changing the mode of delivery. But we're going to figure that out, and we'll be better from that. And I think in the future we will have some kids and some parents who would like that as their main, and I'm talking about the virtual, they're blended, as their main delivery of instruction. And, and I, I would say that as a positive. I'll pick up. Yeah, this is Jay. I'll pick up on that. Um, you know, uh, as a state, uh, we have we have been very slow to uh, develop, you know, really good across the state broadband um, uh, responses. Uh, we are we, you know, we have made some some good changes in in the last uh, few years. But Richard and I were on a task force. Um, I guess now it's been about five years ago, right, Richard? It's yeah, working on on a broadband um, response, and you know there were a lot of obstacles in the way, and there are still some legislative obstacles in the way, although it's been lessened uh, uh, dramatically. But this uh, this crisis has really shown uh, the importance of of that investment, and, it, and the issues are different in rural areas uh, than in than in urban areas. Uh, but, uh, you know, in rural areas, it's it's often sheer connectivity. You know, there simply is not uh, the kind of service that allows uh, 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 teaching and learning to happen. You know, um, I think uh, in urban areas, we've got we got a lot of service, but we still have a we have poverty. That means that some folks cannot afford that. And we still have that digital divide on connectivity across the state. I think we've got major digital literacy problems and that we have a lot of. Of folks, uh, parents, for instance, who just 
uh, don't have the the capability to the com computer knowledge to to use computers uh, well, and are often you know really flummoxed by uh, software uh, issues. Um, and then um, this is the area where I think we've probably done the best uh, is in terms of devices, uh, but uh, we've got challenges there uh, in certain districts uh, as well. I do hope we come out of this with you know, some more permanent answers when it comes to broadband. Um, and uh, and I, I really think that's a, that's a possible benefit that will benefit not just education, but also economic development and the, the ability of, of citizens to really connect with each other and, and their government. Mm -hmm. And just to add some context, Dr. Barth, to your comment, uh, there's a website, broadbandnow.com, that ranks right. Arkansas 41st among the states in access to, in terms of access to high-speed broadband. So uh, you're certainly right on there. Um, Anna, anything to add? Yeah, I thank you. Um, I, I did, I want to echo a, a lot of the things that were already mentioned, but I do think that um, Dr. Abernathy pointed out one of the things that I really hope, um, you know, public schools really do deliver a lot of services to mm -hmm. our communities. And I think that that's something that has perhaps become, um, I don't know if it's that it's ex expected or if it's just not realized that, that the public schools are really so crucial in delivering those services. And, and so I, I think that this pandemic definitely laid bare the inequities that exist across Arkansas. And that's a good thing in that now we know and we can fix them. I, I think what I'm most hopeful for is because we're in this crisis teaching, crisis learning moment, a lot of the rules um, don't really apply because we have to adapt to be able to continue to deliver the services that we do deliver in addition to education. And so that's going to give us a lot of opportunity to try things that perhaps we would not have been able to try before um, without the pandemic scenario. So I'm hoping that when we come out of this, we come out of, uh, we come out of it in a new direction that mm -hmm. is led by the educators and the administrators, the frontline workers, as you as you mentioned before, um, yeah, so that we can better serve our communities and our students. Great. Want to talk to you about distance learning or virtual education? Uh, it had been gaining in popularity for some time before the pandemic hit, and then it really roared into relevance when schools closed in March. Um, the research on the effectiveness of virtual education has been mixed. Um, I'd like to know from you, what was your view of virtual education before COVID and has your opinion changed since then? Well, if I may, I think one thing that when we're talking about virtual learning and we're talking about what happened at the end of the school year, uh, I think that's kind of um, an unfair comparison because what happened during AMI was that was that was really just like an on the fly reaction to a situation that we could never have foreseen. And so 
there were some problems there, um, but that's not really what virtual instruction is. So what we're preparing for for this school year is completely different from any of the AMI. Um, you know, I, I have done, um, I was an adjunct professor at our virtual academy um, so that I could see what the curriculum was like for the students who took French with that option versus what we offer in our brick and mortar school. And it, it's really hard to compare the two experiences. Um, that particular delivery of instruction is with the Florida virtual curriculum. So it's already uh, a prefab curriculum and the students just self-pace. There's not as much interaction on the part of the professor as I personally would, would like to see. But I think that's also the beauty of what's about to happen right now is that the virtual instruction that's being offered through the schools themselves are it's being designed by the teachers within the schools and it's being aligned with the curriculum and frameworks and the, the professional learning communities that exist in those schools. So it's going to be it's going to be a different experience than. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I think that there are benefits to both. I think that it, it comes down to um, which teachers shine in in a virtual delivery the same way we, we don't recommend every student learn virtually. Every teacher is not going to be at their best in a virtual situation. And so I think we have to find our strengths and we have to put our best people where that where they can shine and help the students who who need the instructional delivery that way. Dr. Sparth, Abernathy, anything you'd like to add on that? I, I think she absolutely nailed it. <laughs> you know, and we will have some kids that uh, excel on a virtual a classroom, virtual setting. But I think, again, what we did last spring compared to what we're going to be doing this fall will be two different things. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, virtual because most of the things what I saw was very um, much basically self-paced uh, curriculum. And I don't like canned uh, curriculum program. I, I like um, interaction between the, the teacher and the student. I always just felt like that that was the best uh, learning opportunities of all. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, uh, the change that will, will occur uh, this fall and, um, and, and watch that grow. But you know, I, I do know that there are kids like, um, uh, that will excel you know, with a self-paced type program. Uh, I would not be one of those. Uh, I, would, I needed, have always needed a little more direction and uh, my teachers were always able to give that to me. So, but but it, it's one size doesn't fit all, and, and so I, we will have teachers and students uh, excel in this particular environment. You know, I think the one thing that, that worries me a bit, um, and I agree with everything that's been said uh, so far, and I did do a little uh, virtual teaching in the spring. I was teaching my last class at Hendricks um, when, uh, when things shut down, and so I, I did get that experience uh, in the last five 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 uh, weeks or so. The one thing that I'm worried about is the tremendous variance that we're going to see across the state. Um, I think that in certain districts where really great professional development has happened in uh, over the summer, um, you know, there's going to be some pretty amazing uh, stuff that happens um, where there is a lot of connectivity. Um, um, and so I think that I feel, you know, better about, you know, cer certain 
parts of Northwest Arkansas, uh, parts of, of Central Arkansas where there's a lot of uh, lot of connectivity uh, and a lot of good professional development that's happened. Uh, but I do think there are going to be some kids, some whole districts that really get left behind a little bit. And, um, you know, I, we've uh, the whole story of education in Arkansas has been, of course, the, the battle for, for adequacy and equity. Um, and I'm, I'm fearful that some of that uh, inequity is really going to pop to the surface as a result of, of, uh, of the virtual education that is high quality in some places and lesser quality in others. Any other valuable lessons the education system can take away from this experience? I think, well, I, I will say, I, I think we, virtual education is, is, is going to have a permanent role uh, in our, in our, in our, in our school system. And, you know, we all know that um, every year there are a lot of hours of teaching and learning that are lost because of a, a snowstorm or a, um, you know, some other uh, thing that keeps kids out of school for a few days or a couple of weeks. I think this is going to create some real um, better use of, of some of those times after uh, the pandemic is over, because we're clearly going to be in a, a very different state uh, now than we, we were before when it comes to preparation for situations like that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Abernathy? You know, when I, when I think of valuable lessons, and I guess I'll, you know, at least from what we have had up to this point, is um, flexibility and being willing to change. Uh, you know, in many cases, uh, education has been slow to change. Um, even though the virtual learning has been out there for a while, some of us embraced it uh, quicker than others of us embraced it. Um, but just being flexible to, uh, to change. So I think that's a lesson that we will keep going forward uh, as well. That, we need to be more flexible. Change happens at a faster rate now than uh, what it has in the past, and, and that, that speed will probably continue. Uh, what I hope most that will come out of this is just, um, I hope that this establishes an opening for conversations uh, amongst all of the stakeholders. We talk about that a lot. Um, and I know that we do it with committees, but I think that this pandemic has really shown us that that those conversations need to be more than a checking the box that we asked people and more about collaborating for the needs of our specific towns. Because, you know, as it's been mentioned before, it, it's so different it, when you when you leave Fayetteville, the needs of the community and the needs of the students are very different even if you just go right next door to Springdale. Um, and so we, I really just hope that, that people, the community comes in and, and stays involved with the schools like we've seen right now. Parents are being very vocal, educators are being very vocal, and, and people are taking that voice all the way up to the legislators and the governor and the and the Secretary of Education, and, and those are the decision makers. Those are the people who decide what the rules are for education um, currently and going forward. And so I think we have a real opportunity because we have, you know, education notoriously is slow to change, but we've kind of been shaken loose from, from all of our constraints and the barriers. And so we have a real opportunity here, and I hope that we take advantage of it and turn it into something 
really awesome and get us a little bit higher on those pulls. Right, right, yeah. There's a lot of anxiety surrounding the start of this school year. Um, what would you say to the parents, to the students, to the staff members who are uh, anxious about this coming school year? No, they, that, that is a tough uh, decision because there, there are, uh, there's a lot of anxiety with, with everyone, uh, administrators, teachers, parents, kids, um, opening up, you know, here in a couple of weeks. You know, and you, you can go back and look at some of the science, and, of course, the science is changing. Um, and so the only thing we can really go off is the guidelines and trying to uh, protect each other, uh, such as wearing masks, et cetera, social distancing. Um, and I, I think the good thing of this is parents have had, most parents have had an opportunity to make those decisions on what they felt comfortable with. If, if they weren't comfortable uh, sending their kids in school, then they have uh, opportunities to keep their kid at home either virtually or, or otherwise. Uh, so that's a positive, but, um, you know, we will constantly be monitoring. We're constantly trying to protect kids. Um, we are working on trying to uh, get some flexibility on being able to close down in a timely manner uh, if an outbreak does occur. Uh, and I, I think that flexibility will be granted. Um, and, but I, I wish we could say that everyone's going to be protected, um, but, you know, we know that's probably not going to be the case. That we're going to do the best job we can. Yeah, I guess my my key response would be, I mean, the anxiety is real and it's legitimate, and it needs to be respected. Um, and um, and I I think there have um, people are in different spaces in terms of their their own personal health, their own uh, uh, their own kind of sense of risk. Um, I mean, it's uh, but the. You know, and I, 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 my only, my real hope is that um, state leaders uh, really show a respect for the data um, um, as it uh, as it emerges, and uh, shows a willingness to uh, quickly adapt um, when 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 the data goes in a direction, if it goes in a direction uh, that is problematic, um, and that that is my. That is my wish, and my 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 view is that uh, it's it's right to be um, it's right to be anxious because this is a, a dangerous uh, and as we all know now um, very um, easy to transmit uh, virus. And I really appreciate that comment that the anxiety is is real and it's something to be respected because you know, it's it's hard to be the educator who's in charge of protecting all of the students and knowing that you might not be able to do that. that. That's a really heavy load and I think that contributes to the anxiety. And so just acknowledging it, um, I think is a really good first step. And, you know, I, I encourage everybody, not just educators, but the students and the parents as well. I mean, one of the things that contributes to the anxiety is the unknown. And there are a lot of questions out there that remain unanswered, but there are questions that do have answers. And so I, I really encourage everyone to use their voice and, and let people know how they're feeling. And, and at least that from those conversations, perhaps something can come of that that can relieve some of the anxiety. But I think it's also important that when we approach this school year, 
we need to understand that this school year will look like no other school year we have ever seen before. And so we have to be really careful with our expectations, especially those expectations of, of, of students who are returning to the classroom for you know, multiple days a week. It's just not going to be like the school years before. And, and that doesn't make it bad. Um, but, but we should expect those differences because, again, um, the anxiety a lot of times lives in that unknown. And I'll pick up there. I mean, I think we also um, really have to be conscious of how the evaluation of, of schools um, and the evaluation of teachers um, um, in, in this atmosphere. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't necessarily have um, uh, testing that gives us some insights into how well things have gone or not, uh, but I, I really think we need to be very wary of using those uh, tools as any kind of uh, gauge of the overall uh, performance of, of those schools because we know this is this is just not not a normal year, and I think we. Uh, we 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 need to put the biggest asterisk ever in terms uh, behind the any scores that come out of this year. I, I want to back up on that too because um, actually I was zooming with superintendents this morning and and one of them who is a veteran superintendent, former superintendent of the year, uh, just made the statement that this was his first year being a COVID superintendent, um, and and that's true. So everything's new, and we've also been telling our our administrators that this is going to be the first year that that your teachers are teaching under this. Uh, and what Jay just brought up was about evaluating schools under this new norm. Um, people need to be very careful with that. And, and sometimes people like beating public schools over with data. Um, and we don't know what the data is going to say, say at, at this point, but, but this is, it's challenging times. Uh, and it's the first year for us to, to teach with these methods and, and try to educate our kids under these circumstances. So uh, I hope, that, that people and, and political leaders would realize that and start cutting schools a little slack on uh, using data to beat them over the head. And the public, uh, I would just add the public to that list of folks who, who need to be need to be understanding. All right. Well, um, great responses. I uh, I think we're going to wind this down here, and uh, that does it for my questions. Is there anything else any of you want to get in there before we sign off? You know, Jay brought up the, the equity issue uh, from one district to another district all across the state. And of course, he has been in a position where he has seen uh, multiple districts. So they all don't look like Northwest Arkansas or, or wherever. And I, I do think that we're going to have a huge equity uh, issue moving forward. You know, we have districts right now uh, that have been able to work with their providers and in been able to provide broadband access to every one of their kids' home. Um, we have other districts out there that, you know, their survey says 80% of the kids don't have access to the Internet at home. Uh, so as we're moving to a virtual world, uh, we have to fix this broadband issue uh, and make it affordable uh, for everyone uh, at some point. I mean, it is a utility anymore. It's not, it's not yep. a luxury. It's a utility. And so uh, the equity issue is real. Uh, and I think it's going to be dramatically exposed uh, the next couple of years, and, and we're going to see haves and have-nots when it comes to kids' education. And I would just hope, you know, it, it has become abundantly clear that 
that public schools are are really crucial to helping a community function, but also um, with their contributions to the economy. And I and I hope that that our state legislature will will look at that and they will make the appropriate investments so that we're able to address the equity issues that have been brought up today um, for our current school year, but also for future school years. All right. Well, everybody, again, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed our talk and you've been uh, so very kind to participate in today's podcast. Um, so um, uh, everybody take care of yourselves uh, and, and thank you to those of you who are listening to this. Uh, thank you for uh, listening all the way through. And Thank you for the opportunity. Thank, thank you. Again, I want to note that the De Democratic Gazette series COVID Classroom begins Sunday, August 16th. It will feature periodic stories covering COVID-19 and education. The series is supported by a Walton Family Foundation grant. This is education reporter Dave Perosic. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves and good luck to all of us as we head back to school.